Going beyond the headlines? Getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're enjoying our lovely Chinook. Quite the arch earlier today. And then there's just that weird lighting as you find yourself under the Chinook clouds. But uh, right now, 16 degrees, a little breezy, but we will appreciate it because we know it could change by next week. No, I'm not quite sure if it's changing that quickly. Now, if you were with us yesterday, this time we were talking about young people and how their sleep is impacted by their use of smartphones. We broadened the conversation to not just young people. We know adults also. And and so today I, I'm talking about smartphones again. So if right away you're saying, Ange, what do you have against smartphones? Two days in a row, you're going after smartphones. I have nothing against smartphones. In fact, I know how important they are to my life. I also know that in the evenings when I get home around seven o'clock, I turn it off until I wake up the next day. But I, I know that they are just such a big part of our life. It's not something we can ignore. And for some people, it's so hard to ignore them. It keeps them up at night, as we were talking about yesterday. It not only keeps you up at night, it can really play with your mind. When you are on your social media feed, and if I give you an example, let's say over the past couple of months, we've had wildfires in BC, in Alberta. We've had hurricanes in the States. We've had Harvey Weinstein sexual allegations, harassment, rape allegations. It can just be so overwhelming to the point where it plays with our psyche. Dr. Mary McNaughton-Castle, psychology professor at the University of Texas, joins us today. Hello, Dr. McNaughton-Castle. Hello. You've studied this to the point where what we are coping with in our world of social media, mostly through our smartphone, what term do you use when we, we look at how people are impacted by this? I have been starting to talk about the idea of compassion fatigue, which is something that was identified for therapists and first responders and people who are hearing the stories of people who've gone through disasters or tragedies and the helper slash observer becomes affected in some ways by what they're hearing. And I think that in our world, as you say, of smartphones and 24-hour news feed, we can become immersed in those stories to the point that it affects our emotions, even though we're not there and don't even know people who are there. What kind of effect is it having? What, what are we seeing as far as symptoms go? Well, in my research, I don't find that it's pushing people into full-on depression or anxiety the way you would get a diagnosis if you went to a psychologist. Mm-hmm. But I, I think of it in terms of a malaise. People feel as though things are worse and and getting more difficult going along, even though really if you look at things like crime or even the scope of the disasters we've had, they've been terrible, but the loss of life is not necessarily as bad as in past disasters because our responses are better. And similarly with depression, anger, I think it, it colors how we view the world and maybe partly what you see in social media plays to how you already felt. So your, your vulnerability is, is part of it. 
love the idea of the compassion fatigue because I would like to think most of us are compassionate. And is that why it impacts us more if we are on one of our social media feeds and you see it and, and your first reaction is, oh, that's awful. But then you see it over and over again. <laughs> we only have so much compassion to go around. Absolutely. And that's part of what we teach and work with disaster responders as well. I'm a clinical psychologist, so I spent a week down in Rockport, Texas, a little earlier this fall, and that is the site where the eye of the hurricane hit. And one of the things you find with people who are working in disasters is after a couple of weeks, they start to almost feel symptoms of burnout tired, irritable, frustrated, trouble sleeping. And the word compassion kind of implies that, you know, the fatigue would be that you've stopped caring. Mm -hmm. But what I am arguing is that there has to be a self-protective mechanism that kicks in because you can't really absorb and care about every bad thing that's happening in the world for 24 hours a day. And the part we forget, I think you alluded to in your introduction, is the fact that the Internet, social media, our phones, email, have never been a part of people's lives before. This is a huge new experiment because surely there were disasters, crimes, terrible things in the world, but you didn't hear about them. 24 hours a day yeah. before our current media. And you, you had to wait till the 6 o'clock news or the hourly radio newscast, but it wasn't as if it was constantly there. Now, now Mary, I want to go back. The fact is you do work with first responders. I think they have a legitimate case for having compassion burnout. I feel like I am... 400 times removed from the the front lines of some of these disasters. And so then there's a part of me feeling like, Angie, why are you feeling like you're burnt out? You haven't done anything but turned your phone on. Right. Well, and that speaks again to the difference that the media has made. Because 100 years back, you knew about disasters that happened in your immediate environment. And what we see even now is whether it's the fires you've had in Canada or they've had in California or the hurricanes, people on the front line in the crisis are stressed, but they also have the opportunity to do something real to help. And that's why we get these heroic stories of people stepping up. Part of what happens when you're watching it from a long distance away through the media is your impulse is to care and to help. But it often feels like there's nothing you can do. Hmm. So I think part of the fatigue you get from just watching it on the media is that sense of helplessness and lack of control. And again, I think, you know, when we offer people a chance, we say, you know, we need blood, we need donations. They step up. But those still don't really feel tangible, like you're really helping as much as if you're there. I love the fact that you say a hundred years ago, if there was a disaster, you were either it affected you immediately, you knew about it, but it wasn't as if you knew about the disaster that was happening in a, a town many hours away. So as much as technology has brought us closer together in this world, I think that means it's amplified all those characteristics that we take on as a caring and compassionate community. 
Absolutely. And I actually do that as an assignment in my stress management class. I have college students ask their families what their great or great-great-grandparents, as far back as there's a story, about where they lived, what they did, what their stressors are, and we talk about the differences. And the truth is, back then, life was harder physically. Most of our relatives had you know, young children that died. The infant mortality rate at the turn of the century was 15% of babies didn't make it to a year. But you were much closer to what you were doing. You didn't know as much about things spread all over the world. You didn't have technology eating into your time to sleep, your time to interact, your time to be outside. And so again and again, I just say that we are living an experiment that's never been done before. Ignorance is bliss. Uh, Mary, I want to take a break here because um, I want to see what kind of steps we can take to combat this compassion fatigue. And I have one thought that it probably has to do with turning our phone off, but we'll talk to Mary coming up next. We are talking about compassion fatigue when you are on your social media, and usually it is in the form of your smartphone, and you just seem bombarded by bad news, negative news, and how that plays on you. Dr. Mary McNaughton-Castle, psychology professor at the University of Texas, getting some great text here, Mary. One person says, is this where the science of black or dark humor comes from for first responders? You've worked with first responders. And as I talk about coping mechanisms, is that one of their coping mechanisms to kind of have this dark humor? I think it is. It gives you a way to step back a little bit from the situation, also to release some tension. And one of the problems of doing disaster or police or other emergency work is that in the moment, You really can't let yourself feel all of the compassion or the sadness or the anger that the situation warrants because you're responsible for responding. So one of the problems is that first responders get good at tamping that down, but if they don't eventually deal with it later, it can lead to problems like PTSD. So they have to to be aware that you can't ignore all those feelings Continually. Yeah. Uh, Another texture just says, are people getting numb or desensitized from all the bad news? And I think that's yes, but... Yes, yes, I think so. Although I would say they're not so much desensitized as actually taking steps to help themselves cope. Hmm. Because like I said, you know, it's not as though you turn off the news because you've stopped caring about people. You turn off the news because you feel overwhelmed by the scope of the problems and like there's nothing you can do. And for me, those are two different things. I think that there's probably a self-care component to saying I've seen enough right now of this disturbing situation and I need to step back and take care of myself and calm down. But what I also really urge people to do is to pay attention to the aspects of the disasters that are overwhelming them. For example, you know, animals. That's been a big theme in the last, in the fires and the hurricanes. And people will say, you know, all those homeless pets. And I say, right, maybe you can't help the animals in Florida or Puerto Rico, but you can go volunteer at your humane shelter. So you try to do something Mm. to address the problem at at a local level, but something tangible. 
You mentioned turning off the news, and I I think everyone realizes we get our news from so many different platforms, and this goes back to our whole conversation about our phones. So as much as I, I knew heading into this segment, Mary, you're probably going to say the simple solution is just turn off your phone. You know, it's not as simple yeah. as that, though, because <laughs> the flow is not only news. It is information. We use our phones for scheduling. In your case, you know, when you work in the news field, it's your job as well. And I've talked to journalists who say, well, I, I don't have the ability to turn it off. And I actually ask people to do something that I would tell anyone in my private practice if they want to change a behavior is spend a couple of days tracking when you go to your phone, probably when you get up in the morning, probably in the evening, but are you looking at it at times that your motives are not just to get information, but because you're bored with what you're doing now, or you're looking for something exciting or interesting? And there is some research that you know, when we look at our social media, we get a tiny dopamine surge, which is the chemical in the brain that's reinforcing. So starting to understand why you use your phone, almost like you would if you were in an eating dieting program or smoking cessation. Mm. And then you can say, okay, I can now decide what times of the day doing this is really not helpful and I'm doing it for the wrong reason and when it's useful and I need to be plugged in. It's very interesting to look at your own pattern. Or when you're at a restaurant and you look at other tables of couples and they both have their phones on, I always think, oh, is your relationship that boring? But but you're right. I love that idea of when are you looking at your phone and what is the purpose to looking at your phone? Uh, even being in the news business, I do make a habit of turning it off at 7 o'clock at night and not looking at it till the morning because, and I know someone's listening going, oh, great, Ange, you're not on top of things. But I figure when I turn it on in the morning, I can look back, and if it's something really important, you bet it's all over Twitter. So there still is, it's not as if I've missed anything by not being on the phone. I have a partner who's different, though. He goes to bed, and he has to look at it before he goes to bed, and I, I always say, isn't that the same stuff you're going to read in the morning? So so that's, yeah, that's good advice, and I'm glad you're willing to admit it's not a simple thing. What about, though, even when it comes to your your thought process? If you find you are becoming more negative, or there's this general malaise after you've been inundated with what you're seeing in social media? Again, that is a complicated question because there's a lot of psychology research that shows that we kind of are drawn to the negative, and there is probably a survival value for that. You know, if someone in your cave clan got sick eating berries or was hurt in a certain location, you'd want to watch, you'd want to look at it, you'd want to see if it was something that threatened you. So what I find is that it's sort of easy to watch the negative news, to just say, well, gosh, this is further proof that it's all bad. And it takes more energy to be um, critical of that input and say, okay, well, is crime really worse or is that Mm. a statistic? Can I look at what the data is? Can I think about solutions for how this could be changed? But you have to sort of fight that impulse to just say, well, they said it's bad and I'm tired and it feels bad. Right. Uh, you still have to think of your, the critical thinking component of this then. 
And that's a huge part with the media in general because we have so many sources now. Uh, Again, in one of my psych and health classes, I assign students to find an article on a health um, comment, you know, something about medication or exercise or food, and track it back and come back to class with the actual source to see if the news article was even based on something that made sense. And one of the frustrating things is sometimes you can't. They don't, the, the news outlet doesn't even list the actual person who did the study. But I think that's a good thing to think about is where are we getting our information and what can we trust? Mary, thanks for having the conversation with us without being on your smartphone. Or maybe you were. <laughs> I am actually on my landline, and I did not look at my phone, although the the last funny piece I'll say is it was interesting listening to your ads in Canada about preparing your car for winter since I'm sitting in South Texas. You don't have to rub it in. But that just (laughs) illustrates what we hear about things that are far away from us. Exactly. And, of course, Texas, you had to go through some pretty lousy weather as well. Mary, thanks so much for this. You are most welcome. I always enjoy talking about it. Uh, Mary McNaughton Castle. I promise, tomorrow, no talk about your phone, no talk about an addiction to internets. After the break, though, we are talking about, well, technology in a different way. We're back after this.